good to be with you today. My name is Garrett. I serve as the director of local missions here at Nova. Um, and our scripture text today is going to be Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. So you can go ahead and start flipping there now. So communication can be a funny thing at times, right? Like obviously there's talking, like actual verbal communication like I'm doing right now. Uh, But I think most, if not all of us, know that a a whole lot of communication uh, does not take place with verbal words. And I'm not really talking about emails or texts either. No, what I'm referring to are those things like our posture, our facial expressions, our movement. These things have the capacity to communicate far more than we may realize a lot of the time. And there's a whole lot of studies out there that try to figure out what percentage of our communication is nonverbal. And by the way, if you do Google that question, you'll find answers ranging from like 50% to 93%. So who knows how much of it actually is. But what is true is that a whole lot of our communication is nonverbal. But then we can take it a step further as well. There are many cultural practices that communicate things as well without our words. And so what I'm going to do is I have a few examples for us, some pictures. I'll show you a picture, and then you guys just tell me the context of what's happening, okay? Uh, So let's get that first picture. Okay. So somebody just say it. What's What's going on in this picture? Funeral. Of course. All we see are a few people dressed in all black and some flowers, but that's enough for us to communicate that a funeral is going on. Let's go to the next picture. What's going on here? What's this context? Yeah, somebody at this location passed away, unfortunately. Uh, we see, all we see are flowers and a cross, but that's enough to communicate to us. And in this moment, I'm realizing that my first two examples are about death. Um, <laughs> It's okay, the next one's a little happier. Let's go to the third one. Okay, balloons on a mailbox. What is this communicating to you? Birthday party. There's a party going on at this house. See, I got it. got happy. It's okay. <laughs> okay, you can take the picture away. <laughs> so it's interesting. We all know exactly what's going on in each of these pictures. They communicate something very specific to us, but that is because these things are culturally normal to us. But if you were to take somebody from ancient Greece and show them these pictures, first you'd have to explain to them what a picture is. And once you do that, they also wouldn't know what these things symbolize like we do. And then, I know we've been talking a lot about nonverbal communication, but there's a whole lot of verbal communication that is cultural as well. If you were to take somebody from colonial America and say, what's up to them, they'd be very confused. But we have a lot of examples of this, like a lot and a lot of um, phrases or idioms that are very normal to us, but if you like examine them, they're kind of strange. Like if somebody, if somebody sees something amazing, they may say, holy cow. You ever thought about that? (laughs) Or if some, somebody may say, oh, that's really, that's really cool, or that's sick, or rad, and it's just like, that's an interesting phrase. And then there's also titles that we use. 
Like, Tom Brady is the GOAT. Some of you may not know what that GOAT stands for, greatest of all time. We have all these different forms of verbal and nonverbal communication. They all make sense to us because they're a part of our culture. But they may not make sense to someone who is not a part of our culture, and at the very least, they would be not so clear. In the same way, Scripture is filled with cultural communication that may not initially make sense to us, but that's because we live 2,000 years later halfway around the world. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter. This is when we remember Jesus triumphantly riding into Jerusalem. It's the Sunday that kicks off Easter week, the last week of Jesus' earthly life, the Sunday before his crucifixion on Friday and his resurrection the following Sunday. And what we're going to explore today is that Jesus communicated a whole lot about himself in the triumphal entry, but not with his words. And they may seem like very subtle or covert communications to us, but that's because he was communicating in very culturally significant ways. They were clear and obvious to the people at the time, just not maybe to us. And so like I said, our main scripture passage today, it's going to be Matthew 21, 1 through 11, and by the way, all the scripture passages that we're going to read today, they're in your sermon notes. Um, and if you've been with us the past couple of months or weeks, we've been going through the book of Exodus. Um, we're taking a break from that this week, next week, and we'll be jumping back into it soon. Um, but anyways, jumping into Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Follow along with me. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is God's word for us today. Um, So if you're like me, maybe in the past you've read this passage. You almost kind of viewed Jesus as like a passive participant in the exuberant and loud entry into Jerusalem. Almost kind of as if Jesus was just casually entering into Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden this big crowd formed around him. Almost kind of like a, oh shucks, you guys are so nice type of situation. However, we do a little 
cultural detective work. If we look closely, we will see that this is not really Jesus' posture at all. His entry into Jerusalem was very intentional, and he actually orchestrated it. So a specific phrase, a title that gets attributed to Jesus often, something I want to look at very briefly. It's the title, Son of David. And now a lot of us, when we read uh, the Gospels and we come across the title, Son of David, uh, I think we probably just realize, oh yeah, that's one of those titles that Jesus gets, but we don't really think of it too terribly much. But this title actually carried a great amount of significance. On the very basic side of things, uh, Son of David means that Jesus is from the line of David. He's a descendant of David. But more importantly, uh, this specific title was designated for the person who was Israel's Messiah. The person who is going to lead them out from under oppression, who was and is the true king of Israel. We see reference to this title uh, throughout the prophetic books, but most specifically in Isaiah. But with that in mind, I want us to look at very, very briefly a passage in Matthew 20, and that's the chapter right before our passage today. At the very end of this chapter, Jesus heals a couple of blind men. And notice what they call him. In verse 30, they say, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. They acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, the true king of Israel. But what is more fascinating is that Jesus does not tell them to keep quiet about this. Now, oftentimes in the Gospels, when someone correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, as the true king, he would then tell them, don't tell anybody about this. But in this story, him healing the blind men in Matthew 20, he does nothing of the sort. He heals them and goes on his way. There's actually pretty much an identical story to this one in Matthew 9, where Jesus heals a couple of blind and mute men, and likewise they too call out to him, Lord, Son of David. But er in this earlier passage, Jesus tells them not to tell anybody about what happened. He wants to keep it a secret, which then begs the question, why does he want to keep it a secret in Matthew 9, but not Matthew 20? And very basically, um, to publicly claim his status as Messiah, as the true king of Israel, would be to begin bringing about the death or bringing about the events that would lead to his death. By publicly claiming his status as Israel's true king, he knew that he would draw the ire of the religious leaders and they would seek to kill him. It wasn't time for this in Matthew 9, but as we see in Matthew 20, Apparently, it's time. It's almost as if in Matthew 20, when the blind men call out to him and call him son of David, by not telling them to keep quiet, it's almost as if he's turning to them and saying, yes, that is who I am. And also, right after the triumphal entry in chapter 21, 
Jesus clears out the temple of money changers and people who are buying and selling goods there. And while he's doing so, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a a den of robbers. He refers to the temple as his house. The temple has always been the house of God. In addition to saying that he is the true king of Israel and the Messiah, he also claims to be equal with God. And these are the things that he is also intentionally claiming about himself in the triumphal entry. Um, so this story about Jesus telling the disciples to get a donkey is kind of weird, right? It's a strange story. Now, firstly, um, by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey... Jesus fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. It says it in, first vi- in, ver- in verse 5 of our text today. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By procuring a donkey to ride on into Jerusalem, Jesus once again is making a proclamation about himself. He's fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that he is the true king of Israel. Now, the people at this time, and especially the religious leaders, would have known this prophecy very well, and so there was no hidden message in what Jesus was doing. Jesus was publicly declaring that he is the true king of Israel by purposefully riding in on a donkey. It was purposeful because, you know, he told the disciples to go and get that donkey. Jesus knew what he was doing. But it's also rather interesting in how the donkey was procured by the disciples, right? Like, essentially, Jesus just tells them to take a donkey from somebody, and inevitably, when that person confronts them and says, hey, what are you doing? The disciples are to simply respond, the Lord needs it. Kind of seems like a weak explanation. Like, imagine if you're at home. You're just relaxing in your living room, and then all of a sudden you hear your car alarm go off. You go outside, and you see somebody breaking into your car, and they're hot-wiring it. And, um, and so you naturally yell, yell out to them, what, what are you doing? And they respond with, oh, it's okay, the Lord needs it. <laughs> My guess is your response isn't going to be like, oh, well, in that case, please. And here, take the Mercedes as well. Now, that'd be silly. In the same way, there must be more going on behind the scenes with the disciples getting this donkey. So the village that Jesus told the disciples to go to uh, was Bethany. Bethany and Bethpage were two villages right outside of Jerusalem. Bethany was the town that Lazarus was from. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus also performed a whole lot of teachings and healings in Bethany as well. If anybody knew who Jesus was, like who he truly was, it would have been the people from Bethany. And so when the disciples told them the Lord needs it, they know exactly who they're talking about. And because they also would have known the Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah riding into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey... 
they also knew what Jesus was doing by getting this donkey. They were able to put the pieces together that he was going to ride on it, and in doing so, proclaim himself as the Messiah, as they probably already expected him to be. And finally, notice that the crowd of people that welcomed him as he entered Jerusalem, they were not the people from Jerusalem. They were the people from Bethany. I think this is a common misconception. I think often when we think of the triumphal entry, we think of the crowd being people from Jerusalem, but that's not the case at all. In verse 10 of our text, it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The people of Jerusalem didn't know who Jesus was, but the people of Bethany and Bethpage sure did. And it was the people of Bethany and Bethpage that made up the crowd. You see, when Jesus sent for the donkey, he wasn't just sending for a donkey, he was sending for the crowd as well. Now you may be wondering, well, all of this information is well and good, Garrett. But what significance does this have? And I'm really glad you asked that. The significance is that Jesus was not a passive figure in the triumphal entry. He orchestrated it. And there was a lot of intentionality in him doing so. And while it may take a bit of explanation for us to understand what was happening, the people at that time in ancient Israel would have known exactly what he was doing. Jesus was intentionally, publicly, and quite frankly, loudly proclaiming his kingship, his status as Messiah, and that he is equal to God, which then intentionally put the onus on Jerusalem and the religious leaders. He was basically saying to them, either you can crown me as the true king of Israel, or you can kill me. It was either crown me or kill me, uh, because the ancient Jewish, Jewish laws against blasphemy of that kind, they, they required death. Essentially, if somebody claimed to be God, but actually wasn't God, that was grounds for execution. Either they could crown Jesus as king, just as he was claiming to be. Essentially, they could believe him, or they could kill him. Crown him or kill him. There was no other option. And that is the story of the triumphal entry. Um, I think often when we think about Palm Sunday in the church or the triumphal entry, we think about it in very uh, happy and celebratory terms. Like this morning, we had the pre-K kids come and sing while waving palm branches and so cute. So cute. And by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Jesus was declaring himself to be king, and we should obviously be celebrating him as king. It's a big part of Palm Sunday. However, there is a side that I think we often overlook, um, which is the confrontational nature in which Jesus portrays himself in this passage, like I already explained. And it's not an aggressive confrontation. 
but rather it's Jesus saying, whether you like it or not, this is who I am. And who I am may go against a lot of your preconceived notions of what God looks like, but nevertheless, this is who I am. And I think it's very easy for us to point the finger at the religious leaders of the people of Jerusalem and think, oh, how could they have gotten it so wrong? However, we should be engaging in self-reflection as we look at the character of Jesus throughout Scripture. We all have tendencies to form Jesus into our own liking rather than accepting him as he is or who he claims to be. Are there any ways that we individually have made Jesus out to be something that he is not? Are we expecting Jesus to be something that he isn't? Jesus is not nationalistic. So palm branches were a symbol of victory in ancient Israel, uh, most often military victory. The people of ancient Israel assumed that Jesus had come to lead them out uh, from oppression from under the Romans. That is why the crowd waved those palm branches. As we know nowadays, this is not what he came to do at all. He did not come for political purposes, but rather to free humanity from the tyranny of sin. And on top of this, Jesus also told his disciples to spread the good news to all people in every nation and every tongue. Jesus wasn't Israel first. Jesus is not America first. Jesus isn't any country first. He is concerned with the kingdom of God, which transcends any government, any people group, and any country. Jesus is not nationalistic. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Sure, Jesus taught frequently in the temple, absolutely. But Jesus also frequently associated with sinners and the quote-unquote unclean. He gave women dignity in a culture where they were stripped of dignity. He touched people who were sick or blind or leprous and healed them, which, by the way, overtly broke one of the Deuteronomic laws. He ate dinner with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, a Jewish person who collected taxes for the Roman government. He was a traitor to the Jewish people. And by the way, tax collectors often took extra for themselves, like they stole from people. Tax collectors were reviled, and that's no hyperbole. Jesus struck up a friendship with Zacchaeus, like an actual friendship. He liked being with Zacchaeus, and also with a whole lot of other sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Who do you think that would include today? I think if we think that Jesus is a friend of sinners means that Jesus is a friend of people who tell little white lies every once in a while or get angry here or there or who are, you know, good, clean Christians most of the time, but they make a mistake here and there. 
I mean, first of all, yes, he's a friend of those people as well. But I think if that's what we think that's all it means, we're selling it short, significantly short. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus opposed the religiously proud. You guys ever realize that the only times, pretty much the only times, that Jesus had harsh words for somebody in the Gospels, it was the religiously proud? These were the people who followed all the rules. They knew God's laws. They knew what was right and wrong. And they followed these rules. Life for them was based on a hard set of black and white principles, and they followed them literally. However, they also looked down on those who did not perfectly follow the rules or who were not, quote-unquote, clean like them. Jesus opposed the religiously proud. Jesus did not cancel anybody. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. His gospel is one of forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation. And this is available to any and everybody, no matter what they have done. There is healing available to all. Jesus did and does not cancel anybody. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Following the ways of Jesus is what leads to true life, to healing, to restoration. And we often look for these things in other places, but all those things will always fall short. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, in our passage today, Jesus makes some very strong, very overt, and very loud declarations about himself. He is the true king. He is the Messiah, and he is equal with God. It may not exactly have been what the Jewish people were looking for, but that is who he was and is. The religious leaders and people of Jerusalem had two choices, crown him or kill him. In a similar way, we should take Jesus' confrontation to Jerusalem and the religious leaders and lovingly turn it on ourselves in self-reflection. Are there any ways that we have individually made Jesus out to be something that he is not? Are we expecting to be, or are we expecting Jesus to be something that he isn't? And throughout the Gospels, we get a clear picture of who Jesus is. And he essentially tells us that we could either take it or leave it. He gives us free will, choice. But he's also not really into us picking and choosing the parts we like about him or the parts that fit into our own preconceived ideologies and then, you know, discarding those areas of Jesus that we don't like. Throughout the Gospels, but perhaps most poignantly in the triumphal entry, Jesus rightfully declares himself king, and we have a choice. Will we follow him fully? Not molding him to what we like or what we want. Will we follow who he truly is? 
but we will also fall short, often. Maybe in very significant ways at times. But what we celebrate on Easter is that there is always forgiveness. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see, we see him take on the totality of evil and sin so that he may be with us and we may be with him. Do you understand the depths that God goes to love you? He loves you fully and unconditionally, and there's literally nothing you could have done that would ever make God stop loving you. You know, I think it's good that we celebrate Palm Sunday. I really, really do. I think it's great that the kids come and sing a song and wave their palm branches. Jesus was, in fact, declaring himself as king on that first Palm Sunday, and that is something that we should affirm and celebrate. But I think it's also a day that should initiate some reflection. Are there any ways that we have formed him into a king of our own liking? Are we following Jesus as he truly is? And as we enter into Easter week, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, I think there's a little bit of tension, kind of just like I was explaining right here. We have Easter. The biggest reason for celebration, period. But before that, we have Jesus being betrayed, taking on the sin of the world, being crucified. It's really heavy. And I think just as with Palm Sunday, there's a little bit of tension. I think there's a little bit of tension as we go about Easter week. And my encouragement to you as we jump into Easter week, just... Sit in the tension. I think that's okay. And when we get to Easter Sunday, after feeling that tension for a week or so, it's going to be a celebration. It's going to be a celebration. 